Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm always looking for a snippet of audio to put at the beginning. Like I've decided that we're going to do some sort of out of context quote at the beginning to kind of like hook people in. Oh, okay. Like in the first episode, Seth talks about, and then you ramble a little bit on something that's that's just casual conversation. Then boom, it's a podcast. And I think <laughs> it's going to go at the front of the <laughs> podcast. Ha, 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 ha. I was totally here to listen to all that. <laughs> <laughs> so funny, guys. So funny. everyone and welcome to mandatory media the show about the books movies tv poetry and other pieces of media that really should have been mandatory on your media study syllabus but probably wasn't hi i'm brett and i'm your host for today i'm a poetic scholar and a scholarly poet whose skill set includes the capacity to identify and create chiasmi though my era of focus is the early modern period my article compassion sweet poison was recently published in the merton annual Hi, I'm David. I've got a bachelor's degree in media and communication studies. Mostly spent my time reading and writing about sitcoms, film, and video games. Hi, I'm Seth. I'm a wannabe film critic, a student of the theater, and a lover of the arts. Wow, that was very poetic. Which brings us to poetry, something I know very little about, but that Brett knows a lot about. Can we just take a moment to appreciate the beauty of that segue? It's pretty good because <laughs> today's topic is John Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. Ooh. Boom. Transition. Yeah. I, I also want to, before we get too into it, I want to get it out of the way. This is probably something that would go on a, on a poetry syllabus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How accurate is our intro? In this case, not accurate at all. This would make most introductory introduction to poetry classes. But I wanted something that would draw people in before I talk about the obscure ones. I'll draw them in with Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. And, <laughs> and regardless, uh, I had a great time reading this. So okay, exactly. Yeah, this a, that's a, I just wanted to point that out to astute listeners that. While this would be on a syllabus, we don't really care. <laughs> uh, there's also a good chance that uh, some things I pick will definitely be kind of uh, co-opted from a class that I took. So, sorry to all my professors, I'm stealing your stuff, and I'm not going to credit you. Great artists steal. <laughs> exactly. I tried to tell my, my prof that the other day. But she said, no, Seth, you still can't turn in an essay you bought online. So, <laughs> And now that we've insulted our professors, let's talk about poetry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Ode to a Nightingale. It fascinates me. I hear in the echoes of Spencer, Shakespeare, and Milton. It's also so poetical because, I mean, it's about beauty and death. And what's more poetical than that? All good Ultimate poetry subjects, yeah. All good poetry is about death. One day I'll definitely contradict us on that, but yes. 
So, Brett, who is John Keats and what's this poem about? Okay, I'm glad you asked that. I thought before we get to our discussion of the poem, I'd talk a little bit about the general literary significance of Nightingales and a bit about Keats's biographical context. So, the mournful Nightingale has predecessors that go back at least to Virgil and to Ovid. In Virgil, whose figuration to my mind is more relevant to Keats's poem than Ovid's, the maternal Nightingale who laments her deceased fledglings is a figure for Orpheus, the archetypal poet, mourning the second loss of his wife Eurydice. In his book, The Poetry of John Milton, Milton will make many appearances when I speak, <laughs> Gordon Teske notes that the word Nightingale is lovely in itself, but still lovelier in Greek because it means songstress. The Greek word for nightingale, like the English word ode, both derive from the Greek verb to sing. In a sense, then, the nightingale is the maker of odes as much as Keats, and there's an intimate connection between the poem's bird and the poem's bard. While the associations of the nightingale's song with melancholy and mortality are mostly literary, the sadness of Keats's songbird is also justified biographically. His father died in 1804 when he was just eight. His mother died in 1810 when he was 14. His brother Tom died of tuberculosis in the winter of 1818 when Keats was 23. And the following spring he would write Ode to a Nightingale. According to his friend Charles Brown, the ode was the work of a single morning, written after listening to a nightingale in their garden. Early in the next year, Keats would be diagnosed with tuberculosis himself, and the year after that, he died. The passing of Keats's family members haunt this poem, as does his anticipation of his own demise. Do you guys have any thoughts? Some really light topics we're covering. Yeah, it's wow. Really, really uh, uplifting, uplifting stuff. Um, <laughs> tuberculosis and dying. Yeah. Seemed to be a lot of tuberculosis that went around. Yeah. It's like a, it was like a thing you could get in the 19th century. I mean, you can still get it now, but... Uh... Can you? I, I feel like John Green's been very vocal about this. On, okay. like, YouTube shorts. Yeah, yeah okay, he probably has, <laughs> but... Glad to see we're getting good medical information from great sources. Okay. Uh, tuberculosis 2023. By the way, that's John Green behind like Crash Course and I, I know who John Green is, Brad. <laughs> no, but there's I'm another like... John Green who researches Sasquatches. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> then that's good. That's clarify. <laughs> He's dead now, but Oh, oh, oh R.I.P. John Green. Wait, like Crash Course guy or No, the the Sasquatch, Sasquatch guy. guy. I'm assuming. The Sasquatch guy. Okay. <laughs> Did he die from tuberculosis? <laughs> I don't know how he died. Maybe he's still alive. I just assume that he's dead. Yeah, you can get tuberculosis. That's... I mean, you can get... The theoretically, you can get pretty much any disease. Yeah, sure. But you don't think of, like, those old-timey diseases as, like, a thing anymore. Like, if someone said, I have scarlet fever, I probably wouldn't believe them. <laughs> I go, okay, sure, yeah, you got scarlet fever. Little house on the prairie, what are you going to do? Um, but yeah, I guess you can. Huh. Well, I suffer from an excess of black bile. 
And that's why I chose this poem to talk about. <laughs> okay. I was actually at my doctor's the other day because this wasn't feeling super well. And he's like, yeah, you know, your, your four humors are just not in alignment right now. We need to put some leeches on you. Yeah, my, my chakra guy said a similar thing. <laughs> that was post-acupuncture, so I'm not sure. There you go. There. there you go. Anyway, right. back, to, back to poetry. Back to an nightingale. So Keats is a real sad boy. He's real sad. He's not dead yet, but he's going to die soon. He's a he's part of the kind of like romantics, right? Oh yes, absolutely. He's a second generation romantic. Mm-hmm. So Wordsworth and Coleridge and Southey and those kinds of people have already disappointed him by turning old and grumpy. Mm-hmm. So, but he's still contemporaries with like Shelley and Byron, who are sure, yeah, still energetic and going against the institutions and all of that. Now, would it be a fair assessment to, like, when you list those names, I'm more familiar with the second generation romantics. So is it more, is it fair to say that those were, like, the more famous of the bunch? Um, no. Wordsworth oh. is pretty famous. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> As is Coleridge. Yeah. Selby, Selby isn't. Selby, basically Selby is, well, I don't want to say basically Selby is remembered because... Byron mocked him, but the main reason that I know him is that is because Byron mocked him and rhymed his name with Melvy. <laughs> Get bent. <laughs> Maybe one That's day so we'll funny. discuss the opening of Don Juan. You mean Don Juan? Don Juan. Nope. I, I mean Don Juan. In this one context, it's pronounced like that. Huh. Other, otherwise, the rhymes in the poem will not work. Curious. That is the most frustrating who, who, thing. Who wrote I've that poem? Heard. Pardon? Who wrote that poem? Lord Byron. So Byron obviously didn't know Spanish. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows? That's 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 the that's the problem I have with Byron. He just doesn't know Spanish very well, and it throws me off. I read his English language poems and I go, yeah, this guy doesn't know Spanish. You know, it's more his incest that bothers me, but... (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that'd do it, man. That'd do it. (laughs) Gosh. Uh, Yeah, I did not know that about Byron. (laughs) I think I'm just more familiar with the second generation romantics, probably because of uh, how much like the origin of uh, Frankenstein is immortalized in my brain, and I go, oh yeah, Byron and Shelley, and Shelley, they were all there at that house, and whoa, it was on Doctor Who, you know. Ah uh, yeah, but Coleridge is quoted in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. There you go. And do you know who else is quoted in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Milton. I, no. Yes, John Milton. <laughs> Why did I even hesitate? Yeah. If only with Keats, that would be a much better segue, but he was. <laughs> it all comes back to Milton eventually. So what is the difference between first and second generation romantics? Um, so the most obvious one is that they're basically a generation apart. So it's like this older group of poets and then this younger group. Although the older group... L- 
like the ones that came earlier tended to have longer lives. Meanwhile, the second generation tended to die young. So then the first generation would often outlive the second generation. But but basically huh. the what the first group started, the second generation kind of continued. Mm. But the first generation kind of began radical, like, you know, in the spirit of the French Revolution, but in a more slightly calmer, more English way. And then you get the second generation that never lost their youthful impetuosity because they died young. Well, I think because they died young. Yeah, I was I was going to say it's kind of hard to lose your youthful impetuosity when you die in your mid-20s. <laughs> there you go. So we have we have our our boy Keats, mm-hmm. uh, part of that second generation. He's sad, and he writes his poem. Is that kind of a, a a fair synopsis of where we are? Yes, he's sad. Like his brother died not long ago of tuberculosis. He's yeah, that's where we are. He heard a nightingale. He wrote this poem, and now we've made it past the title. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and we're three hours into the show. <laughs> As in a true English lecture. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. So in the opening of the poem, well, it quite literally opens, My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains. And this is Keats's response to hearing the nightingale song. Mm-hmm. There's it at first to hemlock, which is like a plant from Europe that, amongst other things, Socrates used to kill himself when he had to do that. And then the opiate is quite literally something made with opium from poppies, I believe. Right. And at the time, laudanum was popular, which was a form of opiate, which Keats almost certainly would have used to soothe the pain of his brother Tom as he was passing mm. and in general times of where you needed a painkiller. Yeah, it's such like an evocative opening. Um, I ended up reading most of it aloud. I'm like, there's just... I always have this with poetry. I have sometimes I can't like track it super well on a page. And I always find that poetry works better for me. At least I could follow it easier when I hear it out loud. And he's just, he's got such a, all right, I'm going to make a, just an entry level uh, assumption. Keats is a pretty great writer. I don't know if you guys picked this up. Mm, uh, that's crazy. Whoa. He writes some good words. <laughs> he write words good. <laughs> I don't know. I love those first two lines. My art, my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though hemlock I had drunk. Just so... Oh, it's great. It's just... What a guy. This is a great opening. It's, uh, it's interesting you say, talk about reading it out loud, because also poetry is often compared to 
to songs and, and music. And I did read up online that there's a number of different versions of Ode to a Nightingale that are that are set to, to music. Mm. I haven't listened to any of them. I was going to do that, but then I, uh, I didn't. <laughs> I was going to, but I just decided not to. Honestly, fair. Fair. Yes. Yeah. And there's like so much like longing, um, especially towards the end of like trying to find some sort of um, like comfort and like an escape from, um, you know, these terrible circumstances that he's found in. Yes. And uh, like, absolutely. I mean, at the first, you kind of assume that the numbness of the poison and the drugs is this kind of numb the senses and to escape the world. Mm. But no, it's for being too happy in thine happiness. Sure. It's some for somehow there's this great delight that the bird song brings. It's a kind of ecstasy, a heightening of mm. experience. And then in the next stanza, it discusses wine in these gorgeous terms. It's the deep delved earth, which is lovely, tasting of flora and the country green. Flora is the classical goddess of flowers, who in the May section of Ovid's Fausti was associated not only with the blossoming of flowers, but the blooming of wine, laboriously stored in great cellars. And interestingly, Ovid also uses her for a carpe diem theme, saying she warns us to use life's flower while it still blooms, for the thorn she reminds us is flouted when the roses have fallen away. And I think that the Mm -hmm. passing of time and the decay of life is something that is constantly on Keats's mind throughout this poem, even when discussing it in the most beautiful and gorgeous of terms. Right. I think also what what came to mind too was, or at least my very little education in in romantic poets of also entering it at a tableau of like uh, the industrial revolution upcoming and lots of changes in like uh, the um, the urbanization of of cities and so the uh, of course the dual contrast between like nature and the encroaching um, cityscape, but it's also a very personal tale for Keats too, which I think draws a really interesting. Um, comparison. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I mean, Keats also wrote a sonnet called To One Who Has Long Been in City Pent. So I think that that is definitely a theme that would resonate with him. Mm. Yeah. I, I'll just read our, for, for, the, uh, for the listeners at home, I'll read um, the first couple lines here of this, of the second stanza, uh, which I... Keaton writes words good. <laughs> um, oh, for a draught, a vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance, provincial song, and sunburnt mirth. I like the phrase sunburnt mirth a lot. Um, rhymes real good with earth. It rhymes really well with earth. I don't use the word mirth a whole lot. Um, so whenever I see it, I'm like, hey, that's a word that exists. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a 
Yeah, very. I I feel like I'm also connecting to it now because we're in like the middle of summer and it's it's globally like the hottest three days ever. Um, so just like the feeling of kind of summertime joy, um, or even kind of like the the maybe a feeling of like restlessness of almost haze or like a daze that you're in from heat from the sun but back to the wine mm -hmm. uh, we talked about the light of the sunburnt mirth and that haze and i think that something related kind of comes across immediately before that with the Provencal song. To my mind, that just evokes this kind of almost dreamlike state of mm. the troubadours, the wandering minstrels going about southern France telling their love poetry. Mm. And that yeah. really idyllic mm. state. I've been reading a book recently called The Yellow House. It's about, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a, a painter called Vincent Van Gogh. Van Gogh. <laughs> Van Gogh, sorry. Um, that little throaty. Van Gogh. Yeah, um, there you go. See, I was raising Van Gogh, so I always say Van Gogh, even though I know it's Van Gogh. Um, uh, but I've been reading a book called The Yellow House, which is about this uh, friendship that he had with uh, Paul Cézanne. And they, you know, they lived together for about six weeks in the south of France. So I've, I've been uh, immersing myself in like the way that those two, especially Vincent, like um, depict uh, Provence and Arlay and that whole area. Um, so when I'm when I'm reading this, I'm like, I'm I'm imagining the work of, of Vincent Van Gogh, um, <laughs> and like the way he depicts, uh, you know, the people working in the fields or the small towns of that area or the gorgeous skylines. So, so for me, that's kind of the the imagery that's evoked um, through that reference. Yeah, def definitely. Like, there's there's something about like Provence as held people in its grip. Am I saying that word wrong too? <laughs> you you yeah. hey, you know what I make no apologies. It's province and it's Van Gogh. Anyway. Were we recording when we said that you stud studied French for years? Um <laughs> <laughs> I really hope so because this I would be a great we full circle moment. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, Provence has, has held people in its <laughs> arms, I guess, for a long time. Like, uh, a while ago for journalism class, I read uh, A Year in Provence by uh, Peter Mayle, which is a, a memoir of this guy who I think lived in England before and then decided to get, like, a tiny cabin in Provence and, and live there for a year and detailed the, the like, culture and and how different it is and just the like it's interesting to me how the like kind of like folksy vibe i guess mm -hmm. if you want to call it has has survived into the modern day just because sure. of how i guess i don't know if you want to be poetic about it it's how the land shapes their their thoughts and their their relationships 
That's really cool. So we have this this beautiful wine over a beaker of the warm south. Full of the true, the blushful hippocrene. Now, what is the hippocrene? Ah, uh, well, if you look at the footnotes in the version that Brett provided, uh, it is the fountain of the muses on Mount Helicon. Helicon? Helicon? I don't know Greek. Um, it's Greek to let's, me. Let's you say <laughs> get away with this one, Seth. Let's say Helicon, because uh, it's H E L I C O N, like like a pelican. Um, so that's that's where the the muses found the of the muses. Um, so yeah, it's this, it's this this cool like mashing Provence which is a very real place that people can experience they can go to with like this mythical location where uh, the muses, these like divine sources of inspiration and the arts um, where this water that's associated with them comes from. I don't know uh, if you guys have picked this up, uh, but Keats really likes Greek mythology. What? <laughs> Crazy. You're telling me that like dryads and the river leaf are like Greek things? Like No, actually the dryads and the river leaf, those are from Norse mythology. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I really enjoyed in the later scenes where he said, uh, you want me to put the hammer down, I'll put the hammer down. <laughs> 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 the quote Norse mythology. There you go. That's a that's a Thor reference right there. Yeah. Actually, Keats Keats wrote the first draft of the 2011 <laughs> Thor movie. Of course, he wrote it all in poetic form, and then Kevin Feige was like, "Yeah, no, we're not doing that, man." So Keats got fired. <laughs> you know, Harold Bloom thought that if Keats lived, he would go on to write Shakespearean tragedies, but no, which is tragic. Personally, I would have loved to perform a tragedy written by Keats, but here we are. Uh, he should have turned Hyperion into a play. That's all I'll say. Good uh, Keats reference. I'm impressed. Well, yeah. Well, okay. You know what? I'll go into my into my diatribe here. Um, the first time I ever encountered Keats was not through in English class or through reading his poetry or through a discussion of the romantics. The first time I met Keats was in, actually personally, like I know John Keats personally, um, was through a science fiction novel called Hyperion. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, in which there's a, there's a lot of Keats references throughout the whole series. Um, and the sequel is called The Fall of Hyperion. So two Keats references in the titles alone. Um, but there, there's, a, there's a character in these books and featured more in the sequel who is a, uh, a clone of John Keats <laughs> who's connected to a giant network of like artificial intelligence. Because apparently in, the, in, in like 700 years in the future, he is the most famous play, uh, not playwright, poet of all time. Everybody loves John Keats. Um, so they create clones of him. Hmm. It's that's how I first encountered John Keats. 
I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, it, they're good books. They're good books. Uh, there's a there's a lot of like poetic references. Um, there's a, there's a lot of poetry. Actually, Brett might really. I don't know, Brett, how much science fiction you normally consume, but I think you would appreciate the poetic references and allusions. And one of the main characters is a poet who's like trying to write, you know, essentially a complete version of the story of of the War of the Titans with the Greek gods. Um, in the in the vein of Keats. Okay. So I've if you no- ever have time to read 600 pages of dense sci-fi. Okay. There you go. Okay. So this beautiful discussion of wine then turns to and purple stained mouth that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. Mm. And that purple stained mouth, like everything before it, seems so beautiful and delicate and gorgeous. But then that seems disturbing to me. Like that's you have gotten, you've drunk drunk way too much wine. You're in a state of obliviousness of you have lost control over your mind and your body. And you're just, you're trying to escape the world to an extent that's not healthy. It's this harsh rejection. I can't even talk now. Rejection. (laughs) I promise you, I haven't been having wine. That's not why. <laughs> you look like you have bottle? a purple stained mouth there, Brett. More like refill the wine bottle. Hey, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, that is, that, is a, that is a great image. The purple stained mouth. Also, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I added a grave accent, but I don't think that there's actually one there. No, there's one there. Oh, there is one there? Okay, perfect. But I just, when I copied and pasted it into this Word doc for me to see, the accent didn't carry over. Oh, well, the PDF that you sent out, there is a stained thing on oh, it. Oh, perfect. I'm glad that my memory is better than my word processor. <laughs> Microsoft works hard, but Brett works harder. Amen. Boom. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, kind of getting super drunk is also an ancient Greek thing too. Like it's, is that in keeping with kind of like the, the mythology? At least? Oh yeah, they did it a lot. Yeah. Um, so any uh, culture that has learned how to create alcohol uh, has gone absolutely insane with it. Um, so let's just throw that out there. It's not just the Greeks who do it. But yeah, no, um, Greek debauchery is kind of uh, famous for being just ferocious. uh, And also it gave us theater. (laughs) So you win some and you lose some. Yep. Uh, The ritualistic worship of Dionysus. uh, If, yeah, the ritualistic worship of Dionysus is the origin point of Greek drama. And then, by extent, drama in the Western world. Hmm. So, if you if you've ever been to a play and you're like that play was pretty good, you can thank a whole bunch of drunk Greeks. But there's also a deep irony with that, because not only are the worshippers of Dionysus kind of the thing that gave rise to theater, but also, and I mentioned how in Virgil's Georgics, um, the nightingale serves as a figure for the morning Orpheus. But in that same work, shortly thereafter, Orpheus is torn apart limb from limb 
by the worshippers of Dionysus, the Menids or the Bacantes, and his head is sent floating along the river Hebrus. <laughs> There's so, a pleasant image. <laughs> yeah. I could not have told you that. I did not know that part of the myth. Yeah, so, you know, they give rise to poetry, but they also kill the archetypal poet. And maybe that's the tension that Keats is playing with. Interesting. There could be a good essay on that. This podcast is not the place to write yeah, it. No, I probably gonna, not. I going to say, it sounds interesting, but I'm not sure this is the place to make a definitive statement. <laughs> it just feels a little like, I don't know, it feels a little bit reaching from and purple stained mouth. That's four words. <laughs> but I think that you could make a persuasive argument about it. But I think that argument would require a few thousand words. Sure, sure. So there you go. Next, next paper topic for you. Yes. Okay, so we ended the second stanza. Uh, stanza three begins. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known. The weariness, the fever, and the fret here where men sit and hear each other groan. Well, I guess that this is just a relatable portrayal of the griefs and wearinesses and just the tiredness that the world brings to those who live in it. Like, everyone has those days. It's not all day every day, but I think that that's very relatable. And that's the kind of thing that you might want. It's not a healthy coping mechanism, but some people might want to have some wine or, God forbid, some opiate or hemlock to get away from things. And I think that it's, it's interesting, too, because you have to draw draw the line somewhere of, you know, everyone feels like man do you remember when we were like seven years old and like our biggest problem was like i want to go to the playground those were good times you know but uh, also when you when you rest too much in that then you then you kind of get i guess like i don't know if you call it like an unshakable melancholy or something like that mm. yeah that's a black bile exactly at, at seven years old i had an excess of black bile it's it's such a this third stand is, is such a such a undercut from the second. Um, the second one is this like wine-soaked journey into the south of France. There's a lot of sun. There's a lot of mirth. Um, there's there's you know the beaded bubbles of the hippocrene winking at the brim. Beautiful language. Um, but then standard three is such a an acceptance of like the tragic. Uh, a couple lines down, and it's like, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale, specter thin, and dies. It's like, okay. Like, <laughs> sad. And it's like, if you imagine the process of that as you're reading the poem, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies, that's the life flashed by in an instant. And I th and many critics of the poem identify that line with the passing of Keats's brother Tom. Mm. 
yeah, there's a there's a note here. Um, yeah, well, in 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 the footnotes, that's what I'm looking for. Where yeah, it's like oh, Keith's brother Tom died of tuberculosis in December 1888. Sorry, December 1818. Almost said I'm 70 years into the future. <laughs> Spectre Finn, ah, I like that. There's there's a lot of these like he uses these, these great adjectives throughout just great pairings of like descriptors and the nouns um sunburnt mirth specter thin it's great stuff mm-hmm. keats right keats keats the words words keats, be good <laughs> words do be good <laughs> and i think that the lines where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow capture something very crucial in the poem. We want to love things and look at things and be one with things, Mm. desire them. But the things that we want to reach and hold on to are always passing away through time. We are time-bound creatures. And if we strive to hold something still, it will always escape us. And so we need to be moving even as the things move as well. So what then do you think is the significance of the capital B beauty and capital L love? Is that like just a, is that like a personification of those ideals? Like beauty, the, the, the form, like beauty personified. That's how I'm interpreting it. Yes, well, I mean, there are personifications for sure, like beauty has eyes and love is pining. Although I'm not sure if I'd go a full-out platonic archetypal forms type thing. Mm. I, I think that Keats would want to say that he's talking about them as general insubst- not in- instantiations of beauty and love in the world. Sure. Okay. He's using it in a general form and in a personified form. Hmm. Maybe even in a pure, more refined form. Right. But I don't think he would suggest that there is, in reality, a kind of transcendent beauty or love. Like Okay, sure. Yeah. Method. And then I guess the power, there's a powerful turning in the poem with the next stanza. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards already with thee. Like, there's an intensity there. This is a rejection, a denial of mm. this kind of numbing of the world that came before it. Bacchus, as we said before, is the god of wine. His chariot is pulled by leopards and keats isn't going to go that route he's going to fly on the viewless wings of posy who is posy posy is a poetical word for poetry ah the beautiful wings of poetry the viewless wings viewless is a word that fascinates me um First of all, I'm not quite certain whether it means invisible, like something that can't be viewed, or something that is blind, not viewing. Well, the footnotes here. 
Shout out Harold Bloom. Um, say that viewless means in this context flying too high to have any view. And and that could well be, but Harold Bloom's not always right. <gasps> what and the heck, I, Harold Bloom? You're lying to us. And I I would tend to read it that it's invis that viewless means invisible. Mm. But I would tend to associate it with the darkness of the nightingale. Like, I, I mean, there is are examples that one could draw of, like the obvious example is Shelley's Skylark is invisible because it flies too high to be seen. But if Posey is related to the nightingale, I believe that it's less viewless because it's flying too high than viewless because it's in the dark. Hmm. Curious. Also, a little tangent that I wanted to share. We may or may not cut this. But John Hollander and Angus Fletcher note that Milton uses the phrase viewless wing in his bad abandoned poem, The Passion. And before Milton, Shakespeare uses the phrase viewless wind in Measure for Measure. As both Keat Milton and Keats were great admirers of Shakespeare, he seems a likely source, whether consciously or unconsciously, and the source passage is one that I found to linger in the memory. So this is from Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. I, but to die and go we know not where, to bathe in fiery floods or to reside, in thrilling region of thick-ribbed ice, to be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world. So that was said by a character facing an imminent death and mourning that he doesn't know what death brings him to. And so my question then is, will Posey's viewless wings, like Shakespeare's viewless winds, carry one to an unknown state beyond mortality? Huh. That might just be something to ponder about and to leave the listeners with. Yeah. I don't really have an answer. I, I barely understand the question, if I'm honest. So, I mean, that's poetry for you. You get to feel it. You don't have to understand it. Ugh. Just feel it. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, mm. more numerous for windows, superior for doors. That's some um, Emily Dickinson that I hope I quoted correctly. Yes, that's a great quote. I, I'm a, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Emily Dickinson uh, wrote some of the great poetry. So I'm uh, a yeah. fan of Emily Dickinson. Our wry humor and irony is unmatched. <laughs> <laughs> We're just too good at this. Uh, so I don't know if you ever heard about insert famous artist slash writer here, but they did some pretty cool stuff. Not sure if you heard of this uh, niche indie poet called Milton. <laughs> oh, just wait! I I'll quote Milton when we talk about the next stanza. I cannot see. I I cannot see what flowers are my feet, nor what soft incense. Wow, incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows. So yeah, there's another there's another allusion to the darkness that the nightingale has, the idea of viewlessness has. 
So maybe your idea of, no, it's maybe more reference to darkness kind of seems true. And especially with the lines that come after that, where it's less a seeing than a guessing what might be, what could be, what was, and what will be. Mm. Um, where with the seasonable month and dows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid May's eldest child, the coming mushroom grows full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves, like it moves from the flowers that are in bloom to the musk rose, which is coming, and then it goes forward to it into the summer eves when it will be full of dew and flies will be swarming about it. So this is a fun thing that I thought of for the first time when rereading this. But when I read Stanza 5, I couldn't help but think of Francis Bacon's 1625 essay of Gardens, wherein he writes, Because the breath of flowers is far sweeter in the air, where it comes and goes like the warbling of music, then in the hand, therefore nothing is more fit for that delight than to know what be the flowers and plants that do best perfume the air. That which above all others yields the sweetest smell in the air is the violet, next to that, the musk rose. I don't know if Keats read this essay by Bacon, but the movement from the violets to the musk rose and identifying the flowers by their odors seems to me a fascinating connection. I mean, mm. critics identified the Keats's catalog of flowers to sources like A Midsummer's Night's Dream, but perhaps this is a possible source, and yeah. Oh. I've never read that essay, so I would not have picked up on that. Darkling. What is a darkling? Okay, so darkling isn't a noun. It is, so it means something like in the dark. Hmm. Huh. Or it could also sometimes mean darkening, I believe. But in the dark here it definitely means in the dark i think right so in the dark i listen it has such a interesting is that an adjective or is that a verb you know as an english major i should know this with more confidence and i don't want to answer that question because i'm worried i'll answer wrong it, it is so fascinating because it could be verb, be, like becoming darker, I guess, like being, adjective. The, in, yeah, okay. Enveloped. Growing dark or characterized by darkness, as in the darkling sky. I'm going to use that word more often because I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. And guess what? 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 It's Milton time. Oh, let's, let's go. go. So I'm going to make a, uh, a sound effect for that air horns. Milton it's time. Milton time. <laughs> so Darkling, I don't know about anyone else, but when I hear the word Darkling, I think of book three of Paradise Lost. Of course. Obviously. Yes. So the relevant portion, I'd love to just read the long opening quote of Paradise Lost, but instead I'll quote four lines. 
Then feed on thoughts that voluntary move, harmonious numbers, as the wakeful bird sings darkling, and in shadiest covert hid, tunes her nocturnal note. So here Milton is invoking light, the divine light, the celestial light of God, because Milton was blind when he wrote Paradise Lost, and he wanted this inward illumination. And so he, as a poet, is like the nightingale that sings in the dark, because for him, the world is dark because he is blind. Interesting. Yeah. Which is another reason why I think that Euless might have that sense of blindness as well. But yeah. I guess... Because although there's I guess, so much darkness imagery. But I guess if you're in the dark, people cannot see you and you cannot see the things around you. So I guess that would make sense. Right. So, okay, so flying too high as to not have any view. Um, maybe in, instead of like a literal flying high into the sky, it's like internal in a sense. You, you know, I, I, I don't... Th Honestly, I think that Harold Bloom is wrong on that point. All right. Like, I, I, like I'm picturing like a nightingale settling on a perch in the tree. Mm, like maybe sure. I could be wrong, but I don't picture this nightingale soaring off into the heavens at this moment. Okay, so sorry. So we made it to the first word of the sixth stanza. <laughs> Darkling. <laughs> Uh, we are doing great progress. This okay. is going to be a long episode. Okay, um, and also in the second line, he capitalizes death. All right, but he yes, personifies yes. death just like he did with beauty and love. Yes, but there's also that kind of old-timey thing of capitalizing a bunch of nouns. Yeah, sure. Which is less common in this period, I believe, but still a thing that happens. Like, it's common in the poetry but yes, I think that it's, again, this personification. Darkling, I listen. And for many a time, I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. So yeah, there, it's like a very direct personification of death, too, because yes. I'm calling him him. Um... Soft names. Yeah. <sighs> now more than ever, seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. Oh, thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. It's just, it's a great poem. It is. I keep saying this, but every time I, like, I read, read sections, I'm like, this is just so evocative and vivid and... Mm -hmm. Thou was not born for death, immortal bird. Well, unfortunately, nightingales do die. But the bird song is forever. There we go. Generations of nightingales will always be heard. I mean, I've never heard a nightingale, but I don't live in Europe. Nightingale lives for about five to, sorry, one to five years. <laughs> Pretty far from immortal. I, I do love the in ancient days heard by emperor and clown. Okay, mm. actually, could we go back to stands? Okay, <laughs> we're going. Okay, sorry. I, I, I feel like we have we've neglected the ending of the sixth stanza. Okay, that's fair. Um, 
still wouldst thou sing and I have ears in vain to thy high requiem become a sod. So you have this progression of being half in love with easeful death, but you're still half in love with life. But there's this question, to quote Hamlet, to be or not to be, to live or to die, which is better, which is more attractive. And we almost get across the threshold of becoming more than half in love with easeful death. But if you were to end your life, if he was to end his life, you would be buried under the grass, under the sod, and would have no ears to listen to the Nightingale mm. song anymore. Mm. You would not be able to appreciate the beauty. So it's like, it's it's kind of a maybe an opposite of Hamlet, where Hamlet is like, I don't want to die. Well, let's just reframe Hamlet for a second. He's not actually crazy. He doesn't want to kill himself. He wants to convince everyone else he thinks he's crazy. But in his speech, he's saying, um, you know, I, I don't want to die because I don't know what lies beyond in that undiscovered country. Um, which I think it's pretty crazy that Shakespeare was doing Star Trek references in the 16th century but um uh but here he his his fear of death is like losing touch with this world it's not so much anxiety about what comes next but you know he won't get to hear the nightingale like he won't get to experience this world yes that that's accurate yes i i mean harold bloom <laughs> borrow him again in some of his Keats criticism, brings Wallace Stevens into play and says that the greatest tragedy is not to be, now I'm paraphrasing quite a bit, but the greatest tragedy is to not be satisfied to be a natural man or woman in a natural world. Hmm. We, we can go to the next stanza now. Stanza seven. I I like the the line about emperor and clown. Cause I fancy myself a little bit of a funny guy. Well, the clowning, you know, you know how it is. <laughs> um, but more seriously, I just think it's, this is an interesting and cool connection of like, you know, the universality of nature. Cause you know, there's all those memes online that are like, if you showed a Victorian child this, they would like die on the spot. Mm. But I think this is the polar opposite of this. If you showed a Victorian child, the nightingale, be like, yeah, it's a sure. nightingale, you know, yeah. like it's uh it's something pure and beautiful. That's kind of not passed down through generations, but available through the generations. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I feel I should say I, I hate to rain on your parade and the first time I read this poem I thought the same but the clown probably isn't a clown it's probably just a rustic person like most clowns in Shakespeare yeah like the clowns in Hamlet being gravediggers yes. you mean they're not people big red noses and big thumpy feet <laughs> No, Keats is actually talking about it. the Joker. This is the first ever reference of the Joker in uh, literature. So all the all the clowns get in a really tiny horse cart, right? <laughs> How many clowns can you fit in a grave? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and then, okay, so he's he's got all these Greek mythological references. He also is not afraid of the Bible with a nice reference to Ruth. Uh, a little bit down, you know, she's, uh, he says, perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth went sick for home. She stood in tears. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a, there's the Bible. Wow. Got it. But Harold Bloom in his, in his footnotes uh, says this is, could be a reference to Wordsworth. Well, I think Harold Bloom is saying that it's kind of a double illusion. There you go. <laughs> Combo illusion. Let's go. <laughs> double illusion. <laughs> but, man, I, I still want to talk about Harold Bloom's theory of illusion, but that would be a podcast in itself in which no one would understand anything. <laughs> he does things it's like... It's just a monologue. <laughs> he does things like to find... Uh, Metalepsis as a metonymy of a metonymy, which... Right. Those are all words. <laughs> so instead, let me just say that traditionally death is the great leveler with ruler and rustic alike partaking in the dance macabre. For Keats, however, the universality of death is subsumed by the universality of the Nightingale's music, which is immortal because it echoes through the generations. The emperor recalls the classical world, and Ruth the Biblical. Yet despite our occasional idealizations of these bygone times, we share in their splendors through our common pleasure in birdsong. Mm -hmm. Okay, anything else on stanza seven? Um, maybe just that I think that we hear possibly a kind of Spencerian note in mm. last words in Fairylands forlorn, for those who don't know. Edmund Spencer wrote The Fairy Queen. I don't know my Spencer well enough. I'm sorry. Oh, also, on the biblical illusion note. Yeah. I, I mean, Keats obviously knew the Bible, but I, to my, my knowledge, he wasn't a Christian. Like, most of the romantics weren't super Christian when they wrote their great works. The sure. first generation of romantics kind of turned to Christianity in old age. Coleridge, I think it worked well for Wordsworth, not so much. But Keats, he wrote at one point a sonnet called Written in Disgust of Vulgar Superstition. And the super vulgar superstition is Christianity. Ah, lovely. So I thought I'd just put that in there for the sake of. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Keats. Um... At least he knows his Bible well enough to include a nice Ruth illusion. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think Ruth is, like, one of the most underrated characters in the Bible. She gets a whole book, but I don't hear enough about Ruth. Well, next next week we'll do an episode on the book of Ruth. Yeah, we could. <laughs> okay, stanza eight. <clears throat> this is it. Uh, this is the... Okay, never mind. Brett's going to say something. Uh, I was going to read from Harold Bloom's The Shadow of a Great Rock, a literary appreciation of the King James Bible. <laughs> totally cut this, but he says, The brief, perfect book of Ruth may be the most beautiful work in all the Hebrew Bible, and it maintains that high place in the KGB, 
Its poetic airs include John Keats in his Ode to a Nightingale. Yeah. That's the poem we're reading. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's all connected. <laughs> Sorry. So you know what? It might be an underrated book in the Bible, but Harold Bloom did. Harold, Harold Bloom likes it. <laughs> that's all that matters. Maybe that's one thing that he did get right. There you go. He may he allegedly had an affair with a grad student, but he liked the book of Ruth. Wait, he had an affair with a grad student? Allegedly. I need to put that out there. There was a story in the 1990s that was alleging certain affairs that he had had. He said, no, it's not true. And then there was another thing a few years later. And Oh, no, Harold Bloom. Uh... I, I don't want to turn this episode into uh, a rehash of all of Harold Bloom's uh, alleged misdeeds. But it's all on his Wikipedia, if you're interested. Okay. Um, but Ruth is a good book. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, but forlorn, forlorn. That, that's a, that's just a great line. Fairy lands forlorn. And forlorn is a great word. Forlorn is a great word. I'm going to start using mirth and forlorn more after this, after this poem. And stanza eight starts with forlorn. Yes. The very word is like a bell. To tow me back from thee to my soul self. Adieu. The fancy cannot cheat so well as if she framed to do deceiving elf. So we get to stanza eight, the conclusion of Ode to a Nightingale. What's up with the elf? What is up with the elf? You know, we had the phase with the moon earlier. We had the fairy land for lore, and we had the dryads. Now we have an elf. All right. Sweet. It's just kind of English e-folklore type deal or whatever. Kind of the mythological, dreamlike setting. I, I mean, and also in the Fairy Queen, if we want to go that route like the kind of royal line of fairyland is are almost all named elf something so like elfinor elf yeah just so many elf things interesting yeah it's fascinating that the word forlorn ends one stanza and begins in another. It tolls like a bell with the kind of repetition of the or sound within the word. And then the repetition of the word itself, it is like the tolling of a bell. Right. And it kind of seems to bring Keats to the end of his reverie, back to reality, back to his soul self, which I guess makes sense because earlier he compared it to an ecstasy, which etymologically means going out of the self. Sure. So it's kind of the returning to the self. And then adia etymologically means to God, adia. Little French thing. But now, of course, it means farewell. The more French I know. Yes. Um, I'm trying to figure out, who's he talking to? This is something I just can't quite... She is framed to do deceiving elf. 
Oh, well, I, I think it kind of shifts between speaking to himself and speaking to the nightingale. Mm. Like it is titled O to a Nightingale. Oh, that's the poem we're doing? Oh, whoops. <laughs> I've been reading the wrong one. I've been reading O to a Grecian Urn. <laughs> Sorry, I, I feel like my tone might have come off as more snide than I meant it to. Well, Seth, it's called No to an Iding- uh, No to an Nightingale. Wow. <laughs> Owed to a Nightingale. So, who the heck do you think he's talking about? I can't speak. I, I've been talking for too long. Adieu, adieu. Thy plaintive anthem fades. Past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? Oh. It's a good poem. Yes. Again, this is why I think that the nightingale is perched. Like, it seems that throughout the poem, it was perched on a branch singing above Keats. But then at this point, it takes off, and the fading of the vision is paired with the flying away of the nightingale. Yeah. Or am I reading too much into it? No, I think so. I think that's, that's, like, he, he finds all this, this meaning in like, I like to imagine that he writes this all in one perfect sitting without any sort of editing or revision. He's sitting there outside. His brother just died. Uh, this nightingale shows up. Um, he writes this poem and as it's leaving, he writes these like last lines and he kind of stops hearing this song. Like this song is what's enchanting him into this magical other world. Where love and beauty and death are all like people and characters that he can meet. Yeah. Keats borrowed, as Douglas Bush notes, the wonderful oxymoron of waking dream from William Hazlitt's lecture on on Edmund Spencer, the Elizabethan poet best known for his labyrinthine epic romance, The Fairy Queen, as I guess I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. But Spencer's poetry attains a happy tranquility, which Keats's never quite does, even in Two Autumn, which is probably Keats's most tra- tranquil and happy poem to my mind. Spencer's vast poem of Ovidian Flux is ultimately founded upon the pillars of eternity, but Keats lacks such a foundation and tries to find satisfaction in a protean nature, where joy is inextricably entangled with sadness. How how about we meditate a bit on the final question, which I think has several senses. It may mean something like, am I awake or am I sleeping? But it may also be asking, should I wake or shall I sleep? Mm. And does sleep merely signify sleep or the endless sleep of death? And also, just to add on that, since we were talking about Hamlet earlier, I, I vaguely recall that Helen Vendler sees the opening lines heartache as an allusion to hamlet's to beard not to be speech where the sleep of death is a consummation devoutly to be wished for it concludes the heartache and a 
and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. And perhaps then the old conclusion also echoes that same soliloquy where it takes the troubled turn to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? Must give us pause. The question, do I wake or sleep then, maybe asks the question, should I live or die, be or not to be? Do you think that that's reading too much into that, or do you think that's what he's asking? I I mean, when I first read this, without hearing any sort of criticism, I'm like, ah, it kind of reminds me of Hamlet. <laughs> so, I mean, I think if you can have that sort of instinct on first read, you're not reading too far into it. You're like, oh, that's a that's for me like a like a, a Hamlet allusion, a sort of, a sort of a connection here, a thematic parallel. Makes a lot of sense. Yep. Shout out to Hamlet. That's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this uh, indie author named uh, William Shakespeare, <laughs> but he wrote some good plays. I don't know. I heard he had a couple of uh, ghostwriting scandals. So, uh, well, listen, I I don't I don't listen to uh, the slander. Um, I heard that he was an upstart crow. <laughs> I'm gonna say, do we have anything else we want to add, or any tangents we want to return to? Personally, I'm good. I got my Hyperion thing, and that's all I was coming into this podcast with. So. <laughs> Perfect. I'm glad I got that in there. Uh, read Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Some good books. Okay, well, that's been our discussion of O to a Nightingale. Thanks for listening to us today. And that's all, and we'll see you next time. If you would like to see any more of my work, you can visit linktree slash Brett V. That is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash B-R-E-T-V. And if you want to read more of my stuff, you can visit my blog, sethinthefilmscene.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Our music is composed by Christopher Whitford, and the podcast is recorded, edited, and mixed by yours truly. If you want to hear more from me, you can visit workingthroughit.substack.com. We, we won't see or hear you next time, but you'll hear us I can see time. every single person listening to this. I don't know about you guys, but I, I have cameras on all of our listeners. Well, I'll be darkling. <laughs> and thus ends literal two hours of recording for our 40-minute podcast. <laughs>